This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 858, Comic Talk Spotlight and Marauders, volume 1. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 858. It's our Comic Talk Spotlight on Marauders Volume 1 by Jerry Duggan. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. I'm going to throw it just in a moment to my uh, my other self, my previous self that already had this conversation with Nathan Strzok and with Paul Scores to talk about Marauders Volume 1 as part of the Dawn of X uh, era of books uh, for the X-Men line. You can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again for listening, and uh, jump right into the episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 858. It's our Comic Talk Spotlight on Marauders by Jerry Duggan, Volume 1. I am am your your host, Adam Chapman. That was quite a mouthful, unfortunately. Uh, I'm joined by my two X-Men co-hosts, Nathan Strzok and Paul Scores. Say hi, gentlemen. Hello. Hi, gentlemen. (laughs) I knew Nate would do that. so today we are converging once again to talk about uh, another book in the Dawn of X era. We're talking about Marauders, which is, I guess, chronologically the next one. Uh, according to the nice text pages at the end of the first issue of uh, X-Men, it also showed that the next one was Marauders number one. So we decided to take that as our cue. So we're talking about the first trade paperback uh, of Marauders by Jerry Duggan. Uh, it's art by Matteo Loli, Michelle Bandini, and uh, I guess Lucas Wernick and Mario Del Pininino. Whew. Uh, that's a lot of words, a lot of names. Um, so just very broad strokes. What do you guys think of this volume? And then we'll get into the nitty-gritty. Did you just say we're converging? Like, I, this isn't DC here. God, what is this garbage? You know, I, I gl- I'm glad that you, you, you heard that one word and just waited until I was done the preamble. Just you couldn't let that one go. You had to be no, like, no. No. <laughs> no. So, Nate, I'll ask you uh, directly. What do, what do you think of the Marauders? I mean, this is... Uh, of all the kind of new books, I would say this is the one with maybe the kind of the much more different than the rest in terms of uh, what it's doing. Uh, it's using a name that we've never seen before on an X book. Um, so that's something we can get into as well. Um, it's one that feels more like its own new entity as a, uh, you know, compared to some of the others, which are co-opting previous names and then going in maybe slightly different directions with them. So what did you, th- what was your first take on the Marauders? I really liked the book. I think it's really good. Um, I was only in passing familiar with, with Jerry Duggan before this, and I think it was mostly from Deadpool, if I recall. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really – he wasn't on my radar. But this and anything else that he has done previous to this, just before this as well, has caught my attention. I want to go back and read. And um, I really, really like the book. I think that – I think we've said this before that it, it kind of feels sometimes like the mainline book. Um, whereas Hickman has a tendency to want to go off-world as much as he can or interdimensional as much as he can. This is very firmly rooted in the places of of Earth in the Krakoa era, so I really love it. I, I'm still, I still find the name a challenge. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get a little bit more into that. So, uh, Paul, what was your uh, – first of all, I mean, we know that Nate's been enjoying all these uh, recently, getting, like, all these Donovex trades in, you know, all shipped to his house, hopefully not all at once. Um, but uh, he's getting these massive, you know, uh, shipments sent to him, all these books, whereas you and I, Paul, I think have been have following along more since the beginning than, uh, than Nate has. So what was your – like, I, I believe, like me, you were reading Marauders first in single issues as opposed to, you know, kind of all at once in the trade. So what was your first interaction? with the book and how did you feel about it yeah so obviously when this whole thing happened i decided to you know similar to nate and, and, and yourself go all in and read everything just that's a part of and maybe slowly weed out stuff that doesn't end up uh mattering as much if it, any books kind of came to that um and then when fallen angels qualifies for that to be honest which was a mini series in itself um but i was pleasantly surprised by marauders i it was a book i was kind of uh, i don't know x-men pirates but um it was a book i found myself kind of anxious and excited to read as it came out um and i think it's nice because it has a very clear uh mission statement it's very grounded in what it wants to do um it has you know great depth and and it's focused on kitty pride um it has uh, some international intrigue with how Emma interacts with Sebastian and the back in government type of stuff and the seats in the council. Um, there's shenanigans, betrayal, like there's all kinds of really cool stuff um, that happens in this book and you get to kind of see a different side of like who knew anything about Pyro before he was on this boat, right? So I, I think it's some really cool stuff and some character exploration for some of these uh, people they've put on the crew and yeah, just a, f- a fun book for sure. So let's let's talk about that name though. So Marauders is obviously a loaded one in X Men history, and it feels weird. And I guess this is what you're kind of getting to, Nate. That you know, given how prominent it was in, in a period where Kitty was around, and also you know Storm was around, and that they would willingly use that name, co-opting it for their own uses, does feel a little weird. Like I feel like the book could have could, could have been called Hellfire, or could have been something in that direction. Um, or the Buccaneers. <laughs> yeah. Right. Anything piratey? Yeah, I mean, yeah, like it didn't need to, uh, Marauders does sound very piratey, but again, its its significance That's- to X lore is what makes it uncomfortable, I guess, because it, it just doesn't feel like something that you know a kitty and Storm alone would ever be party to. It's just because again, that name has too much kind of negative uh, connection to their lives. What if they flip the K backwards so the Buccaneers? It looks like an X. <laughs> It's kind of like the uh, is almost like an X. How about that? Is that would that work better? I don't know. I just I've been trying to think. You know that they, they they were they were they were massacred. So if you take a group that massacred a group of people and then call yourselves after it, I don't really want to pick any from actual history right now, just because I guess it would be too dark. Um, it would feel inappropriate and weird. And I know that they talk about reappropriating the name and. Katie talks about that. Sorry, Kate talks about that as well. I guess we can talk about Kate, Katie versus Kate um, and how she was there and how she knows what that was and how she kind of wants to like make it something different. And yeah, I mean, there are lots of words that people have reappropriated and trying to take the power, the original power, out of it and put it towards something better. So I can understand that. I just I would be fascinated to see even a mini documentary on the X Office. And the debate and the discussion about this and how things landed, like, I would love to hear more from Jerry uh, Dugan about that and just say, like, why did you think this would be good? Because, as you say, so many X fans are like, what? 
Well, it's interesting too. Even the idea of you know kind of reappropriating it. I mean, there. I mean, obviously, the X Men throughout their history fought a lot of evil mutants, but also just as often they you know obviously fought offshoots of humanity and coming against them. And so their biggest struggle has always been against humanity. So they're not even reclaiming something that's been taken from them by humans, but something that you know was perpetrated against them by other evil mutants. In some ways, I would almost have expected. Um, that to be something that Mr. Sinister's squad was instead of the Hellions, that he would have the Marauders because of the connection there. Yeah, they, they should be reversed. They should be reversed. But, I mean, again, yeah, right. I, I, I agree with you. It would be really interesting to kind of be a fly on the wall to those conversations as to how they decided on it. Because, I mean, that must have been really difficult to kind of say, what's this new thing? Like, we're, we have all these other X names that exist. Which one can we use for this? And I'm curious how they ended up doing this. Because they didn't take a new name. They definitely used something that did exist in, in X-Men lore. And I guess that's part of the draw, too, right? Like, they're using an additional, you know, a pre-existing name. Even if you don't know a lot about the X-Men, you might know the Marauders. And be like, oh, wait, hold on. That's X-related. Whereas, if you went with something new, it wouldn't have that same connotation. I hate to break it to you. There could be just a number of names on a whiteboard. That one sounds piratey. Go. <laughs> yeah. But then, as, as Nate what said, it could have been the Buccaneers. Buccaneers with an X? There's no um, king of Buccaneers. There can be if you is want there, it to is, be. It's is usually, it B-U-C-K? What is it? It's like two C's. C. I don't even know what it is. Okay, fine. They take the two C's and put them back. Either way. <laughs> I, do not spell this, I do not spell this word ever. Um, and, and I think I would have to question myself why I, why I would know it so well. Um, oh, I guess it's a it's a football team, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah okay, that works. That works perfectly with the two seeds. But anyway, yeah. Um, I guess Cross also back to swords as a logo. There you go. Look at that. We've done it. We've solved it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So getting back to Paul's earlier point from previous episodes, that it, it does certainly take a stretch of the imagination, or um, you know, uh, to believe that. Apocalypse and Sinister and Exodus and, and even Magneto, who's a famous mutant terrorist, uh, are all now chummy chummy part of the same collective community and they want to do good for the community, uh, at least to the degree that they're on the Quiet Council. It's not just like Omega Red who like, well, maybe he won't make trouble. It's Sinister is a member of the government. Mm. Um, so if the same guy who created the Marauders and, and hired Gambit to you know, actually gather them for him and and, and start that that massacre, then if he's if he's a member of the government now in good standing, I guess it's not the craziest thing to do to name the the, the pirate vessel the buck the, the marauder. Almost said buccaneer. <laughs> Change approved. <laughs> but yeah, um, I mean, do we want to talk about Kate's new name too? Well, her name name change anyway. Yeah, I mean, how do you feel about? You know, again, going just by Kate. I guess it's. I guess it's. It's good because she's setting a new, turning a new page in her life, and we'll probably, hopefully, see her as older for once in a, like in, in a long time. Like she's been slowly aged over the years, and I think a lot of people still see her as in the in the eighties as this as this kid, as the earlier version. Like the Bianca knew before there was a Jubilee was Kitty Pride, and that. You know, uh, Professor Xavier is a jerk. They're still referencing this, like the last page of Marauders number one. Absolutely, is still callback, right? So, hopefully, this will help age her. I mean, there's a lot in this that ages her: the drinking, yeah. the tattoos, um, casual violence, uh, t- being very. And she's very assertive, and she takes what she wants. So, 
yeah, I, I think it's turning a page, and I, I really like that she's Kate now. It does feel it's not turning a page. It's it's throwing out the old volume and starting with a brand new omnibus. It's a <laughs> it's a big character shift for her. Because let's think about it. Like she gets kind of brought back into the forefront a bit, back in Astonishing, right? And you, this is where like the, the Kitty and Emma connection kind of plays in in, in, in these issues. As you kind of see that uh, coming back into the forefront, then she gets stuck in a bullet for a while, right? Then she gets out of that bullet. She eventually still becomes a major part of the team. She becomes a teacher at the school at one point. She goes off into space with Peter Quill for a while. Becomes star. like she's done all kinds of crazy adventures and been a major character and has matured and matured. Um, this is just the next like big phase in her life. And they, I'm say they radically changed her character for for better or for worse. But there is a I I, I, I see a whole different. Uh, Kate or Kitty Pride now going forward, she's really taken this new role by the horns and, and, and going under Emma's wing as this new Red Queen um, and, uh, you know, making the absolute best of it. You know, I don't actually believe what I'm about to say, but it's interesting that, you know, she's she's the mutant who can't easily go to Krakoa. Everyone else can go to Krakoa whenever they want. They live there. And we've kind of said that, you know, some of their personality traits may or may not be affected by Krakoa and what that is doing to them. And she's the one who's not. So what happens, you know, if you, if everyone else around you is kind of, you know, having these Krakoa toxins in everything they do, and you're the one person who doesn't, and you can't easily go to and from there, does that start to change you as well? Um, well, she says it. All my friends went on vacation and left me behind. Yeah, so, I mean, that's part of it, right? And so she's, everyone else has kind of had the Krakoa Kool-Aid, and she hasn't in the same degree. So, I mean, that's part of, you know, this this starker shift. I mean, as you said, look, we've seen this evolution for years. I mean, uh, ever since Warren Ellis had her dating Pete Wisdom, they've tried to, you know, make her a little bit more risque and, and have her grow up from that kind of ingenue kind of personality that we were first kind of experienced with her way back in the day. And this feels like, again, trying to be more concrete, but still connecting to who that little girl was. As you say, Nate, they cannot let go of that Professor X Xavier is a jerk moment. Like that's one of the most iconic kind of moments that she has. So they always go back to it. Wow, that was that was a good moment. I thought Nate was going to say something. I thought he was yeah. going to like piggyback, and it was just like this pregnant pause that just Dramatic. kept laboring. You no, know, you did set me up. You did say my name, which is usually the cue that, that you're next. And I'm I'm sorry. I was just looking through the book. Um, I'm going to point. At, I'm going to point at you next time since we're on video with each other. So at least I can like try and point, but it's not really going to work. No, you you did a good job. Um, I'm sorry. I was I was. I was going through the book again. I was looking at the art. I mean, I know the artists change, but there's enough of a similarity. Maybe it's just the coloring or the inks that, that keeps it cohesive feeling, but it's it's really beautiful. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree this idea of the evolution of Katie Pride, or sorry, to Kate, that that after the Whedon stuff, which, yeah, certainly establishes her as a school leader um, and, a, and a heavy hitter on the team or a ma- an important member of the team again, um, we get the years when she joins with Logan in his school, the Jean Grey school and is becoming a headmaster there. I guess she's like a principal or vice principal or whatever. And then she leaves that and she's like, you know what? I'm, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be with the revolutionaries. I'm supposed to be with Cyclops and his team. We're supposed to be with the, um, the counter, you know, uh, counter human movement, um, that, that Cyclops represents. So then she becomes this great moral compass of the team. Um, very assertive. Again, like I said, like I don't, I see the assertiveness of this Kate Pride is absolutely being a natural extension of that. I love those scenes with 
you know, her famous speech, like the counter M-word speech, the Havocs uh, M-word speech from um, Uncanny Avengers, and also friggin' even like being almost a dorm kind of, uh, oh, what is it called? The Winsor, Whoever watches over the dorms in, in behind you. Den Mother? <laughs> Den Mother, if you, if you will. Um, Cyclops, old man Cyclops is in Jean, teenage Jean Grey's room alone with her. And they're having this like intense conversation where he's kind of like in a weird place with his future wife, who's now sixteen. And Kit and then Kitty walks in and she's like, "Scott, what the hell are you doing? Like, this is a young girl, and she and 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 you have clearly have feelings for this woman who is like looks just like your wife. You cannot be alone with her. I never want you to be alone with this girl ever again. This is incredibly inappropriate." And now Kitty, who's you know, at least what ten or so years younger than Cyclops is, is reaming him out. Like that's, that's one of those moments, several moments in the last few years where it's like, Kitty is absolutely this person who could totally be the captain of her own ship. Um, if you want to have a, hang a heavy hand metaphor on it, right? She's been the captain of the vessel of her own life for years. So why not captain this vessel? So it, it makes complete sense to me. Um, Storm as a very powerful character and leader. It makes sense why she would lead Apollo Kate's lead. Like I'm, I, all of it makes complete sense. And Emma has been trying to groom her ever since she tried to recruit her to the Hellions, to her team, back in the 80s. Um, and that didn't quite work out, but uh, Emma got fried over it, actually. Right, but um, for, forever. And so even in Astonishing, there's that kind of, like, friendly rivalry between the two. But um, you can see that Emma has a respect for her. So it, it, when she calls up Kate and says, I want you to be the captain of this new vessel, it, it makes complete sense. And back to what you were saying before, um, if I could make up for that pregnant pause earlier by just kind of rambling for a little bit, um, the idea of a, one of the mutants who can't enter the gates is a great idea. I love that fly in the ointment kind of thing. Whenever you have science fiction stuff like this, the exceptions to the rule are always what makes it more interesting to me. If everybody's a Jedi, it's not interesting that they're a Jedi. It's because there's only a few of them that can that makes it remarkable, that makes it interesting. Um, and so Kate... And, and, She's also used to being able to travel through everything like it. Everything's been a door to her. She can go through the floor. She can enter through vaults. She was the one who could sneak in anywhere. She's the one who can't now get into her own people's island. And I like how – I think it's this volume too. She says, what is it about this island that doesn't accept me? Like why doesn't it like me? Why doesn't Kurkoa want me? Yeah, that's, that's almost an ontological existential question too. Like this is supposed to be the, oh, the homeland, the mutant homeland. And there's those overtones that we mentioned earlier. I mentioned earlier about Zionism, about uh, Israel, about after the genocide that was perpetrated against the Jews, Israel was found as a way to bring them home as a place of safety. And after uh, we have the same, you know, uh, in this storyline, um, the Genosian genocide against mutants, now they've had this island. Kitty, who is both mutant and Jewish, I, I feel like there's 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 a lot there, right, about someone who is not able to go to the homeland, is not welcome or able to enter that space that is gathering everyone in. Um, lots of very interesting questions, and I, it's great that it's her, um, frankly, with all that in mind, all that baggage and history. So I'm excited more. One thing I, I did appreciate a lot about even just the, the first issue that kind of set the tone is seeing, again, as, as you mentioned, the very assertive Kitty, or sorry, Kate Pride, but also just showing just how physical she can be and how she is able to use her powers. Like, people forget that she was trained by Logan, like, a long time ago to be a ninja, and so she has, like, all these skills. So when she's just taking people out and using her powers, it's really gratifying to see it because, 
There's a, yeah, Nate showing up uh, particular you know panels, but yeah, she's she's kicking ass. She's you know, and there's no there's no apologizing for that. There's just this is who Kitty is. That she's always been able to do this for a long time. We just didn't always get to see it, and they didn't let her be this physical. It felt like they always kind of let other members of the team kind of be the ones doing that. She was the one usually just shorting out technology or whatever. But it's nice to actually see a focus on Kitty being more of a physical brawler. Yeah, she's not a pixie anymore, and and you see that Iceman and Nightcrawler and, and maybe Storm want to kind of coddle her and protect her because she can't, you know, they'll almost pity her for not being able to shuttle through these gates, but she's showing off, no, I can I can fend for myself, I can lead, I, I can be a better person, I can be a strong person, I can lead a team. Um, and uh, they, they do a really good job, at least, especially in the first issue, to showcase that Kitty Pride is, is all business. And that's, there's that almost sense of ruthlessness of, in the violence. Like, the, the rule is, the law of Krakoa is kill no human. So she doesn't. But there are, like, bullets going into kneecaps. And the, actually, more gruesome than that is when she embeds part of physical part of physical objects into human bodies. Mm-hmm. That's, that's rough to see. Uh, hard to, to, to think about the actual real-life ramifications of this panel of her. I'm just like the... I know we can't see show everyone uh, embedding this gun between the thighs of two Russian soldiers. Um, that's disgusting and um, doesn't kill them, but that that's traumatizing, right? Um, that level of brut- brutality makes me think of the AOA Kitty Pride. Mm. The, the AOA Kitty, who what is the favorite uh, line from Claremont? No quarter asks and none given. She was that kind of introduced in, in Generation X as just brutal to her students. She's just coming at them with these clawed hands and not letting up. And that's kind of what Kitty is throughout AOA and, and, and Pietro, sorry, Piotr as well to an extent, that they're very, very um, physically extreme. They're physically extreme in their violence because of the way the world has shaped them. And um, I feel like to an extent the 80s X-Men were just more violent than they were later allowed to be. And that might have been because of the animated series, because I knew more youngsters were watching now um, the comics. I don't know. Or because Claremont was off the book, per se. It could be any of those reasons. But uh, there's a lot of stuff in the 80s that is, is quite violent. And um, this reminds me of that, in a good way. Mm-hmm. How do you like this, uh, this, this tank, this shot of Kitty standing in front of a tank, almost like Tiananmen Square. I feel like there's a lot of references to great political, uh, to political regimes, totalitarian, totalitarian regimes or authoritarian regimes. There's also a lot of politics in this book that I really like. Uh, centering on China and Russia a lot as... Now, this might not be fair, of course, because not everyone in China or Russia agrees with you know laws or policies or Xi Jinping's approach to things, but... There's, there's a lot of intolerance in these countries that is being depicted here in this comic towards mutants. Basically arming themselves in front of the gates, ready to shoot and kill, gaining access to the uh, Delafire technology that we later learned was because of Forge, um, taken from him. So, um, and, and also the sub-storyline here about the, um, what is it, she's a Chinese billionaire? This, yeah. uh, this family, um, if I can get her name, who has declared that her husband has gone missing because he went and touched the gate. The mutants have stolen him, have taken him. This is, uh, oh, it's, it's in Taiwan, I'm sorry. Um, so she's Japanese. 
but she's speaking in Mandarin. Uh, so yeah, she says her husband Lim is gone, and so that's an, an interesting side story as well that involves uh, Chinese or Chinese adjacent territory. So all of that is very interesting to me. For some reason, I think I know what it is. I have been conditioned as a young man to think of Russians as good antagonists. James Bond movies, for goodness' sake, even Transformers. You know, the the idea that Optimus Prime is red, white, and blue as an American flag. And this is the 80s we're talking about. And Megatron just so happens to be steel gray, just kind of this drab gray, almost like communist colors. And, you know, so a lot of that, G.I. Joe and James Bond was always just like the idea of someone with an Eastern European accent, even though I'm I'm half Eastern European. Um, they're, they're the antagonists. And that narrative has kind of always been around, or at least it's been around in my head. So to have the Russian... You know, state now be fully antagonistic towards mutants as pretty much the introductory antagonists, right? Mm-hmm. Like in the first few pages, Iceman wanders through a gate and he's like, oh, hey, and they're like, get out of here. And they <laughs> neutralize him and try to kill him. I was just totally on board with that. Something about pirating around the world trying to bring home, you know, nationals, uh, Genosha nationals um, is really compelling to me. Uh, so everything is clicking with me story. What's interesting about that sequence that you mentioned, though, is how it's not played heavy-handed. Because, I mean, you have Iceman kind of waltzing in, and they, again, like him getting hit with a neutralizer, he's like, whoa, like, oh my god. And, like, he's very humorous. It's kind of an interesting a tactic to take when you start, you know, with something that could be could be used to be very kind of tense and dire. Instead, you have... You know, a very comedic relief version of Iceman being like, "Well, I'm naked now. I better run through the gate." Like it's, it's just, it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition with this very serious kind of moment, and then playing it very light. And I, I, I think it works. I'm almost not even sure why it works because, again, it, you're, you're not really setting the stakes to be that dire, but it still works as a moment. But there are stakes right away, right? Like this is a an island nation of the, some of the most powerful meta-humans, as post-humans, um, in a way, in the world, and you have to have those stakes. You have to say, humans have this tech. Uh, X-Force, when we get to that, we'll do the same thing. They'll be like, through technology, humans, and many of them ruthless humans, are finding all the ways they can to position themselves against Krakoa, the Krakoan threat, as I see it. So they've probably already been working on this tech, but it's been accelerated in the past few months, Perhaps because of Xavier's challenge, you know, what was that that Vision said? And um, I think it's uh, uh, Avengers 2 that maybe it's Civil War. I think it's Civil War. He says our existence breathes challenge, mm-hmm. that, that the existence of super heroes creates super villains, um, which was done very well. I think one of the, the things that was done very well in Iron Man 2, that because of Iron Man existing, um, Whiplash is like, I will show the world that God can bleed. You show the world that you're a God, you think you're a God, I will show the world that God can bleed, and if they think God can bleed, they will come out of the water after you. And so this is this kind of almost very, very true to life politics, that countries are like individuals, or like people, and people will behave what's in their best interests, and countries will behave as they see in their best interests. And so the all these countries lining up and saying we will not recognize your sovereignty or we'll recognize it and we'll get the drugs but then we'll try to manufacture of our own and then we'll try to you know, go get renege on the agreement like all this kind of you know, Paul mentioned it there's the backstabbing and the dirty handedness goes well with a pirate book but yeah they mix in international political intrigue 
and the underhandedness of a of a baby Hellfire Club, a new baby of young, upcoming Hellfire Club kids. Um, it, it's quite an amazing mesh of multiple things, and even you get, you could argue several several seven uh, different genres or several genres. You've got the detective genre with Bishop trying to sleuth out, you know, the, what's happened to this man, and, and I'll, I'll find out what happened to him. And then drug running with um, the Hellfire Trading Company. There's just there's so much, and none of it makes it feel. None of it feel. It doesn't feel too much. It doesn't feel like it's bubbling over. I don't know if if you feel there's anything that lacks here. If there's any storylines that don't hit from your perspective, Paul or Adam. No, 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 no. I think they balanced it out really well. And just to go back to the political nonsense. I'm, I'm glad that they also kind of balanced it. It's not just like. Russia and China, your typical countries you would you wouldn't think today wouldn't align themselves with Crow, but like the like Wakanda and like I, can't, I think there's one more I can't remember off time, but like good countries that um, you would think would support the mutants. <laughs> like I don't no, know. I, I, I just I, the right word. I, yeah, you know what I mean, though, right? Like they're not yeah, trying yeah. to just make Russia and China the bad guys, right? Because here's Wakanda. Yeah, this yeah. this what's Black Panther? It's superhero-y, right? Why wouldn't they align themselves as well, right? So they've they've balanced it that it's not just all these you know these countries that you think are the bad people, right? Um, I also wanted to point out I do love the bit in the first issue where um, uh, Kate imports all of Wolverine's goods from Canada because <laughs> he can't enjoy his beer and his whiskey and Why his ribs. Why can't he do that? Does anyone know? Well, like, how, does Krakoa allow them to bring that kind of stuff in the gates? Well, they bring clothes, which are not not natural. Like, they can bring things to the gates, can't they? Like, well, I mean, or, or like, like, well, here's here, a, when here. Ju- when Jumbo makes stuff, is he just using like human fabrics, or is he using like Krakoan fabrics? Well, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but this panel here, right after Bobby, I love this plant. I love that this exists. I mean, how can we not all put the Krakoa? This is a tree. That everything on this tree is edible. edible. And he grabs off of the tree what looks like a lamb shank, like, <laughs> and he's eating it. And so he takes that through the portal. So Krakoa can. Let, my understanding is Krakoa can let anything go through that it wants to go through, including its own plant-based materials, its own food that Iceman waltzes through the gate into Russia. Um, so I guess Krakoa does not like Canadian beer and ribs. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. I, don't know. I saw there's a shopping list that they they put it at as one of the kind of fun graphs. In, yes, uh, the books. Well, right? more than that, yeah. just just Logan like hurriedly like running into the water like can't wait, must get to yeah. it as fast as he possibly can. Yeah, like that was a great comedic moment. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a little smile on his face, and again, establishing for people who don't even know, like this is how good this is. It establishes so early on that there's a relationship between. Kate and Logan like there are people who might not know that mm-hmm. and this is like no he's depending on her the special list and she's, she's, she's so only in a matter of panels and I mean forget even that before that in the first page or two pages um, when Kate goes to walk through the portal we establish that she can't go through but also there's this reoccurring mild to semi-severe injury that Kate receives like mm. she's getting roughed up almost in a very when you think of pirates you often think of them with scars or cuts or missing eyes or whatever it is or a peg leg and so there's 
from the offset hates getting these bruises and these bashings and these broken noses and bloody lips and, and it kind of perpetuates like once in a while she gets a the old injury gets revived or renewed or mm-hmm. she gets a new injury so that's kind of a thing too it's like it's not the same young pretty faced cake anymore it's she's rough and humble so yeah. it, it pushes so much in the first few pages it's incredible Exactly, and it, and it, it kickstarts to change as the issues roll on. She gets a sword, and then she gets her red cloak, and like she 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 gradually transforms as the story progresses. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, it is nice that we I get to that. see that they don't just kind of jump in with this new version of Kate. We get to see her evolve into the Kate who's really going to be the star of the book. Uh, I do love in the first issue with uh, Lockheed bringing part of the seagull back with him, like a cat, like right? his, like they're part of his kill. Um, I also really loved uh, Pyro being so excited about using dragon fire to manipulate for his like for his abilities because that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, again, it's an interesting choice to use uh, to use Pyro, and again, the juxtaposition between him and Iceman is always nice. It does remind me of Onslaught with Human Torch and uh, Iceman being together, so that kind of idea. I missed the cool icy talk and the and the fire bubbles though for the speech. That yeah. was great. Yeah, that I, that's a good point. I missed that too. You're Preaching to the choir on that one. That's something <laughs> that keeps me up at night, Paul. <laughs> I, I think, think about general, that. I think it's general thought yeah. bubbles in modern comics. No one thinks anywhere. Everyone just talks out loud all the time. Yeah. Or, or they'll do the narrative boxes. And, kind of. and, in, and in the in the 90s and in the early 2000s, they used to do the even the narrative boxes were sometimes flames for the human or That's right. icy narrative box for Iceman. Or whatever, or from Logan, when, especially when he, after um, Wolverine 100, where he rejects the adamantium and he gets all brutish, his text becomes rougher, kind of yeah. uh, text as well. So I miss that too. I don't really know. My assumption is that they got rid of that because it was harder for new readers to understand. That's, that maybe is my, but you would you could counter that and say, yeah, but it's easier for new readers to see who's talking in a room now. Because rather than having to find the, the trails from the word balloons, oh, that's Ice, Ice Ben is totally saying that. Whereas mm. sometimes it can be tough to tell, right? Yeah, I mean, so we always, we always okay. hear about the, lang- the language of comics and how it can be difficult for new readers to kind of understand how, you know, where the eyes go, how to understand things. You would think that something that would be more of a visual kind of tick off as to who is, is talking, especially when you have a guy who's on fire. So then of course, you know, there's flames around the words. You think that would be helpful for someone to be able to follow a comic, but I mean, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. Pyro on the high seas. Great. I mean, maybe it's also because, um, I, I read him with an Australian accent because he's Australian. So that I don't know why, I mean, Australians and ships on the, on the water. I don't know why that lends itself. So, Maybe it's just because so often in the old days, like pirates were just sailors who essentially left either like the navy or the or whatever their their cargo vessels, and then he started stealing. So there was a lot of British with an accent kind of pirates. So maybe that's what it is. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a really good crew, and I also love how there's Bishop, who's really the reticent member. He's like, I don't. Uh, I guess so. I just really want to find Ms. Zhao's husband. And they're like, yeah, 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 okay, come along, come along. And then Kate's eventually like, okay, so wear this red coat. He's like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like, I, I like that Bishop's kind of along for the ride. That's that's so perfect. Do we like the skull face tattoo on Pyro? I don't. <laughs> I'm okay with... Uh, at first, when I saw the tattoos on even Kate, I was like, 
oh no, what's going on? And then my mind, I'm like, I have this weird Puritan view towards tattoos because I'm afraid of them. They're evil, but uh, or bad to have. It's just like I was like, oh, that's not Kitty Pride, but it, it it is the new Kate. And also, when you die, you get brought back with a new body, so they can get rid of this skull tattoo whenever they want. I do like how he's just kind of crazy going along with it. He's just like, what does he say? He's like, he says, uh, let's go, muties, let's go. Like he's he's so oh, over the top. He's yeah. bought into this so well. He's full on pirate. He's like, yeah. Well, do you want a skull on your arms? Like my whole face, face. just dude, make my fucking like, skull face. Like he can't date now. Like I don't know. Like he's the weird skull face guy on Koa, and I kind of like that. Like it makes him definitely stand out. And he's also much younger than the pyro I'm used to. Right, the, um, the pyro is certainly from the animated series, and he died um, really early on, like in the nineties. Right, so I didn't really read a lot of actual comics with him in the nineties. So most of my pyro knowledge is actually from the animated series so yeah, he seems like he's in his like early 20s here they do well yeah they definitely make him seem younger than i guess he probably actually is i mean maybe well, he's I, I thought, maybe he's just a little unhinged or maybe he's just happy to be alive like if we all these things combined right like he was I, dead I, I he, had, were, he died the worst way possible he had the legacy virus yeah. and it was his own yeah. powers killing him from inside so being able to come back, not have the legacy virus anymore, and suddenly there's an entire island of mutants, and everyone can just do whatever they want, and he can go have an adventures and be cool. I feel like, yeah, he'd probably go lose his mind a little. Like this is, you know, he came back to heaven. Yeah, and I think, and they did say that um, that they can bring you back to like the whatever it is ideal age. So I, I would see them maybe why not bring him back to when he was younger. Issue two, when they after right after they get their uh, tattoos, uh, they have a, a brief interlude, not even interlude, but a brief moment with Gateway, and it has got to be the saddest that I've ever seen Gateway look. Like I don't know why, but like just the 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 page where he's just kind of sitting there about to transport them, he just looks sad. Why is Gateway so sad? Yes. He usually has kind of a stoic look, but doesn't look like sad. This was like a sad Gateway. So one thing, I guess, this circles back to the like original Marauders talk, and I, I, I noticed, I obviously, I don't, I didn't, keep me honest here, I don't, I'm not sure if they've ever circled back to this yet. Um, but reading the first issue, right, and the, and like we said, there's no real connection with any original Marauders, but you have um, this this red diamond thing and the sinister secrets, right, at the end of the first issue as a graph. So mm-hmm. Mr. Sinister, as we know, has Marauder's tie-in. So I'm not sure if that was kind of thrown in there as a random throw-in, and I don't know if they've ever gone back and... Or maybe there was something, I can't quite remember, that they've delved more into these Sinister Secrets, but these were kind of really weird and threw me off a bit, reading it at the time. Uh, that's a good question. I don't recall any of it really coming back. Sinister Secrets. Yeah, I have to go back and actually look because oh, there yeah, the red diamond stuff. I, yeah. yeah, the bar sinister sinister stuff. I um, I remember from Secret Wars, this was the thing that they were playing around with, and I would read them, and they're like, oh, you can kind of decipher a hidden meaning, and now I'm just kind of like, I don't care. I almost, I usually skip them. Hmm. So okay. that is an odd choice, actually. Yeah, considering that this isn't that Marauders team. At, like at all, like Sinister has no say in any of this. this no. is Emma's. Baby. To be fair, though, we, I feel like we've seen these Sinister Secrets style uh, text pages come up in other books as well. So it's not. They do. So it's not. They it's do. not really like you know. I think we notice it more maybe because this is Marauders and there's a, an obvious connection there. But I don't maybe think yeah. that there's a deliberate 
connection particularly. Yeah, that's 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 why it's just kind of weird and odd that in the first issue of a book that should really be trying to distance itself from that association, it was an odd choice, perhaps. Hmm. But I didn't think too much about it. Um, okay. I I did love the use of Baytrock in the second issue because I just love me some Baytrock. <laughs> like yeah, those... the, the thing about Baytrock, so I mean, I like when he's portrayed not as a complete buffoon and i felt like he was that way here that you know he had kind of a grace and honor to him and he's like oh, i don't want a war with krakoa like he kind of again he wasn't a buffoon he wasn't an idiot and i like when they remember that he actually you know does have a sense of honor and grace to him and he's you know he's you know people hire him for a reason he's not not just a complete idiot um my favorite representation of um of Baytrock will always be the version that was in Unbelievable Gwenpool because he was written so well and it was it was again he has such a beautiful relationship with Gwenpool and uh, I'm always sad that you know we didn't get to see more of those two together. Um, if you ever read that book, which again I know you guys probably don't care as much, but I love the Unbelievable Gwenpool. It's one of my favorite books, and uh, the ending of that book is so bittersweet because. Of when Baytrox and uh, Gwenpool kind of say goodbye to each other, uh, Gwenpool obviously knowing she's in the comic is you know sad because she knows that you know he won't be this way next time um, because another writer will be writing him and he won't be the Baytrox that she knew and so it's always but I like seeing the Baytrox here still felt totally similar to the version we got in Gwenpool. Weird little stab at the writer who will then follow up next. It's kind of a cheap shot. Anyway, let's talk about Gwenpool some more. Let's make this the Gwenpool <laughs> show. Okay, one last thing though, Nate. I would say it's not really a cheap shot because I think that's fair. Like, I think the, the whoever was writing Gwenpool, I can't remember their their name, but I think they just loved using Baytrock. But not everyone's going to love that character, and then that when that character shows up the next place, they're not necessarily going to have I'm the same saying, reverence. Yeah, your predisposition now to, to to think the next writer won't have the competence level, or it, it is indirectly saying I'm a better writer at, for this character than whoever mm. writes the next. When it's a C or D list character, I think you're allowed to do that because you know because uh, you know how many people would say Baytrock is my character. Like I cannot wait to write Baytrock in a comic. I love Baytrock. They're certainly allowed to do whatever they want, and the editor publishes it. I just think it's kind of like as a professional courtesy. You don't want to like dump in the bed before they take their nap like that's the kind of just setting them I up guess. for a little bit of failure but the, the, you're right the it's use, not a big deal the use it's of the moment was more to again heighten the stakes of the of you know of the goodbye so I get what you're but, saying um, I'm glad we're talking more about Gwenpool here because <laughs> Paul's riveted oh Paul right. is so excited he is stroking that beard furiously <laughs> um, I agree though that it this the other thing this, this scene does with Batok is that it sets up the competence level of, of Kate tremendously. Like, he is a seasoned mercenary. He knows what he's doing, and he handles the team. Let's see what page it is. I can find the page number in issue two. So this would be, I guess, I guess the, the, the text pages count. One, two, three, four, five, yeah. six. So page six, um, he comes aboard, and he's just wiping out, punch to the face, takes out Pyro, takes out with a kick ice hand. Um, and then Kate comes along, and she... Well, the hand-to-hand skill of any of the crew is pretty... Outside of maybe Bishop and Storm, it's pretty low-end, right? Well, and Kate, Kate. Kate's good, too. It's really just no, the Kate two. No, Kate can herself, yeah. It's just Iceman and Pyro, cause they, and which makes sense. They would lean on their powers, because yeah. especially but, Iceman. 
But what Kate does isn't actually combat, like, she doesn't fight him directly. She handles the goons. It's actually Iceman and Storm who, and, and to an extent, with, by fighting him, then uh, Pyro stopped the assault by Batroc. It's just how Kate handles him with words, with, with intellect, with obeying him, with dealing and dealing. That the scene that follows between T and E, there's no punches thrown. She's just yeah. like, this is what's going to happen next. And he's like, are you kidding me? Like, no, like, this is going to ruin the whole operation. She's like, well, this is how it's happening. I hate to break it to you. And he's, he's just like, there's all these shots of him just pleading with this girl who's probably at least 10 years younger than him um, that, that this has to go this way. And then she tosses him overboard. So very much establishing her as the captain, right? She's not even necessarily always um, the, the muscle, even though she can be, but she's also got this knack for leadership, which I think is what do you guys – I'm curious, um, what do you guys think of the use of Bishop? Because this feels like they've kind of – at some point when we weren't looking and didn't care, they've kind of reset Bishop to something that's more palatable and not where he went during the kind of post-Messiah complex, insane, you know, kind of chasing cable through time, weird giant cyborg arm, like that whole era. Is, and- and the and this what is it, the bear the the giant energy bear that too yeah when he came back at some point like I'm glad that we've just kind of collectively forgotten that stuff like I mean it's Marvel so they never retcon they just kind of expand and say well you know they got better and I think I'm okay with that I just I, I don't want to think about all the weird stuff that happened to Bishop because it feels like they've reset him back to where you know the District X kind of days were being a detective uh, yeah. you know and that seems to work better for his character than whatever the hell Messiah Complex was. Yeah, no, they, I, I see what they were trying to do, but they extensively ruined the character with that, that going down that path, right? So I'll take whatever no-prize explanation to reset him back to this. I'm all for it. Now, out of the whole crew, like, it's nice to have him there, but he does seem a little shoehorned in to a certain extent. Mm. Um, he doesn't like feel as natural. Him, yeah, exactly. Like, adding him to be... I, I, it seemed like he was on his own kind of separate mission in the first place. So adding him to this, like, you know, maybe like having to hop on and, and use the Marauder as a means of transport or, or something to help him get to a mission or two, or or to be part of maybe one story arc makes sense. But to be like a long-standing member of the of the crew, I don't know if it makes sense. Um, but uh, it's it's nice to see. I, I agree with you that Bishop back to quote unquote normal. I'm curious, I mean, I, I, again, I don't remember if he died at any point or if he was just kind of normal, but I, I'm curious, like, has he talked to Hope at all or Young Cable? Like, the, you know, you know, they're all on this mutant island together at some point. I'm just curious, you know, what that interaction would be like. It's like, oh, yeah, hey, remember that time when I made your life hell for, like, your entire life as you were growing up? Sorry about that. Like, that's kind of awkward. And I guess Young Cable wouldn't even care because he's not old Cable, the one who actually went through all that stuff, so... I don't know. I could have swore there was some BS conversation that happened way back in Uncanny X-Men before the Hickman thing started, wasn't there? There might have been. Or even before that, maybe in Uncanny X-Force, because there was a lot of X-Forces after the Remender run. There was like there was like an X Force regular and like an Uncanny X Force and then there was like or Cable and X Force and then there was like Bleed Over and Bishop was in one of those books. I don't know. It's this weird yeah, black. I, I vaguely remember. remember something pre-Hickman run that that might have happened already but who cares 
I mean, it's not it's not super important. So let's move on, I guess, more to issue three, where you get a lot more of the kind of intrigue because you have the Shaws. You have Shinobi yeah. and you have Sebastian. It's kind of nice to have those two together. I've got to be honest, I didn't remember anything about Shinobi Shaw's powers at all. Well, I think I remember like one issue of X-Men, like X-Men 29 back in the day by Andy Kubert. That's about all I remember Shinobi Shaw from. So how did you guys feel about the interactions between father and son? Um, yeah, I mean, cool that it's the Hellfireian backstabbery, but now father and son, this idea that they're each trying to kill each other. So it's continuing along what I remember of them, at least, from even the little bits I read of Shinobi in a few issues in the 80s and then 90s um, before he died. So it just kind of feels like it's continuing that, and that's especially interesting in the greater context of this whole comic, which normally the backstabbery of the of the soap opera style um, storytelling is that a character could ultimately die. And in this, they're all immortal. They can't die. So even though we learned that Sebastian wants to kill Kate, it, it she's the only one who it could matter for because we don't know that she could come back yet from death. We She can't go through gates. We don't know that she could be rebirthed in one of those eggs. Um, but for everybody else, Shinobi and Shaw can kill each other over and over again, and they'll just keep getting brought back. So what do you do now with a dynamic like that where death isn't really the final? Um, so, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going to go, per se, with this. It's not something I'm most focused on. I'm really more interested in the, in the Emma stuff. I love all the Emma stuff in this. I haven't enjoyed Emma this much in a very long time. I think that... Dogen really seems to get her. And, and you know what? To be fair to Hickman as well, I think he seems to get her too. Like those moments we mentioned before in X-Men where that look of shock on her face when the octogenarian lady insults her hmm. or the little words to the side when she's talking you know, to, to Jeep Gray or they're kind of having a go at each other. Like, there's some really good moments. But this is an Emma book and there's so much of her in it. And it's so good. And her back and forth with Sebastian and... He's just like the veins are popping in his head because she's outmaneuvered him. It's very much this master chess game. So every time he goes up against Emma, I find a very compelling. And to an extent, uh, Kate. Whereas Shinobi, he's kind of there for me. I don't, I'm not really compelled by him. I, I appreciate the continuity, but. Hmm. You know. Do you like the uh, nice shot of the White Palace and the Blackstone and the Red Keep showcasing that little uh, area of Krakoa that, uh, where this all resides? Your yeah, it's a, nice, land. it's a nice shot. Well, I don't think it's perfect. I just think it would be really cool to, to be there. But yeah, this is yeah. kind of also the beginning of issue three. Establishing a cove, a hellfire bay, you know, playing up the fantasy, sci-fi, the speculative fiction aspect of this world, but also it it's a place that I think you'd want to go. Like, it's a, it's a pirating book about ships and vessels in the water, the water and coastal inlets and land spaces Lords, if I dare, uh, really have to be part of this, right? Like, to, to, in order to enjoy a Robinson Crusoe story, in order to enjoy a pirating tale, the visuals of the, of the sea and of, of the land meeting the sea really have to be part of it. And I'm, I'm so happy that the uh, the artists go there with this, and it makes it grand and sweeping. And seeing Kate grab onto the part of the boat and it's you know, the wind going through her hair, like it makes you feel this stirring of wanting to be on the on the sea yourself so uh yeah this sequence is part of Krakoa is is a wonderful addition i think it's great 
it is interesting just from a I guess a structure perspective that you know you get two issues which are very Kate focused and then that third issue is so heavily about Sebastian and you know the the inner workings of you know the Hellfire Trading Company or whatever it's called. I mean it's interesting to so quickly kind of change that focus but also to expand the focus of the book. Uh, as you said like it's nice to have feel like Emma has more of a purpose again because I felt for like a long time that you know she was around and she was prominent but I don't know if I could really tell you what her, what she really wanted. Um, you know, like what you know, what, what was her real reason to be there? Like she was with Scott for a long time, and they were running kind of the school together. But what did she want? And so it's nice to feel like now we have a better sense of who she is again outside of Scott, and she's kind of her own woman again. It's also nice to you know they've, they've modernized kind of her look, and you know she's they're not just over accentuating her assets anymore. Like it's more, it's much more toned down, but still feels like Emma. It still feels classy, and, and you know, before she was kind of faux class, and now she feels like she's finally attained true class and power. Yeah, I feel like they were in a rut with her for a bit, not knowing should we keep her kind of the weird, like a good guy, but the anti-hero kind of good guy who will cross that line, or do we want to turn her back full heel and make her a villain again? Like they they teased that stuff back and forth, back and forth, and I think they've kind of they were able to turn it around and, and find that kind of happy medium. Kind of, I, I, I guess, you know, the same spot she was kind of in when, when Morrison kind of made everything way back in UX-Men. Um, mm. And then, uh, you know, um, Josh ran with it a bit more and astonishing and, uh, yeah, gave her a very prominent place on the council. Um, you know, because she, she's, you know, she's a very powerful uh, mutant in her own right, right? So... It's interesting, too, because, like, you know, after, you know, when Cyclops died, like, obviously, she was a big part of trying to keep his legacy, right? And keep, you know, make sure that Scott didn't die for anything, sorry, for nothing. And, uh, you know, try and make, make, make him dying worth it. And so when he comes back, we never really get that moment of, you know, what do they say to each other? You know, like, you know, what does he remember? Um, you know, he, because of Kid Cable's shenanigans, like, he didn't really end up, like, he died, but he was able to be saved. And so, you know, he's still in that. So I, I wish we would have had a, you know, we're probably never going to go back to that story because no one seems, you know, interested in telling it. But I would love to know, like, what what did he say to Emma? And also, what did he say to Jean? You know, she comes, you know, he, he comes back, she's alive, she's been back for a little while now and had to grapple with her own legacy of having died. But, you know, what do they say to each other? What does that look like? And, you know, for fans of these characters and their interactions, it's a shame that we never really got that because there was so much of that. Like, you go back to Astonishing, and when Scott first gets with Emma, like, that's what everything's about. It's about this betrayal of Jean. Like, that's why you have Wolverine showing up in the, you know, in the bedroom being like, this is grieving. Like, you know, so much of, you know, the X-Men soap opera was centered in that area, and then we just completely blew past it. And it's kind of kind of maddening because I'd love to see that interaction between these three. And obviously they ended up in a civil place, but How? That's actually more of a question. Well, I mean, Hickman does like his flashbacks. They'll they'll probably, I mean, there's room for that. There's space for that. Um, or anyone, you know, Hickman doesn't have to do it. So I think that that's something that other writers could possibly have in the back of their minds that they'd like to address. It, it is interesting that Scott and Gene are so, like, they're, they're together, but there's not actually a lot as far as I have seen so far, emphasis on them, on developing them on their relationships. Scott has a, said he's a good little soldier, essentially, and Gene will really step up here in, in terms of the X-Force at first or on the council. But, yeah, there's not... It's not like the old days where almost every issue would have a series of pages dedicated to 
I say the old days is like the nineties. Just Scott and Gene all the time. Um, let's let's catch up with them, which I guess is for the benefit of other characters, but it could still come. Uh, as far as Emma's concerned, yeah, for me, the the things that I see is her main goals in life have been making money. Um, she's she's empowered herself through being a really good business businesswoman, and also helping kids. Like she wanted to make the Hellions her own team and she really thought that she could do it and she ended up failing them. Um, and then later on, she, you know, she's with Xavier's now trying to help kids, trying to help students, trying to help people. So now she's mentoring Kitty or Kate. Um, so I see her here as both as doing all of that. Like she's helping her people. She's making lots of money. Um, and she's uh, she's helping at least Kate. I, I would like to see her also more in the role of helping the children. You see her later in, I think it's an X-Men issue, uh, taking some kids, some school kids on a tour mm-hmm. uh, of Koa, which is nice to see. I would I would love to see, you know, again, talking about what Adam, you just mentioned, those those gaps, those things that we'd like to see. What about the Hellions? Like, I'd love to see her meeting her former students, that they're all brought back. I Maybe they're all brought back to life by now. And she could say, like, look, I'm sorry what happened. And she can kind of find some sort of catharsis there. Um, and they could say, like, it's not your fault. Like, you didn't know what you were doing or whatever it was. Like, we get reminded of that, too. And what is it? Is it issue four or five of this uh, run? I think it's five where she's meeting. She's talking with Kate um, in the ship's hold, I think it is. Or maybe is it issue six where she says, um, it's good that you didn't come over and, and essentially be part of my school because I would have like destroyed you. Do you know what I'm talking about? This yeah. great conversation. Is it issue four? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, it is. It's, it seems to be issue four towards the middle level. Oh, no, it's five. I'm sorry. It's five. Yeah. She says, uh, you mustn't ruminate on, the, ruminate on the past, darling. And then kisses Kitty and says, besides, I was barely a woman myself and would have utterly destroyed you. Um, this is a wonderful conversation between the two. So at least seeing these very meaningful, character-driven conversations between the, the leads of the book. And so if I can't get a conversation with Scott and Emma right now, um, at least we get some really, really good stuff with, with Kate and Emma. So um, there's a lot to be said for this book. Uh, one of the ongoing, like little, very little subplots that I really liked because of, again, what it kind of meant to the characters was um, every time Kate mentions not knowing how to speak Kokoan or how to read Kokoan, because again, she never went through a gate. And so it took a long time before she finally has, you know, Emma kind of give it to her, which I liked as a detail. Um, again, like if you don't go through the gate, you don't also have access. Again, it's those, this whole idea of her being isolated and separate from everyone else for at least the first few issues that she can't even speak their same language. It's, it's bad enough she can't go through the gate and she can't easily get to the promised land, but now she can't even speak the same language as everyone there, which is, again, maybe a, a heavy-handed metaphor, but one I thought that worked very well. Yeah, to be the outsider of your own culture and language is a big part of that. And as somebody who was asked to learn Ukrainian as a kid and put in Ukrainian school and tried to be brought into that cultural aspect of, of that world. Um, I, I fought against it. I, I wanted so bad to just be a quote unquote Canadian kid to have English as my main language. And so I, I pushed back against a lot of that learning and, uh, I regret it now. And I am outside. I'm an outsider of my own culture or subculture. And it, it, Kate's not exactly a, a, a same thing, but yeah, to feel like you, 
you don't quite belong in your own culture because you don't have access to one of these key parts. And maybe even embarrassed that you can speak a little bit, but your accent's not very good or your vocabulary is not very strong. Uh, that is a kind of interesting real world analog for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, issues five to six, we get again, we got back into the action because I feel like, you know, we had that kind of denouement issue where it was just more kind of um, strategic, you know, kind of chess playing. And then we get it more yeah. into the action. I did like the use of the, you know, the, um, was it the executioner? I thought it was nice to kind of see him again because, I mean, they could dust it off once in a while. And like the hate monger, I <laughs> did not see that coming, but I was like, all right, let's, let's use the hate monger again. How do we pronounce this thing? The, the, Homeless Vivendi, what's the actual, do we know? How do you actually Since I'm a simpleton, it? so what, how do you pronounce it? The, the Baby Hellfire Club? No, no, the... Yeah, that's yeah, what they're... Sure. Yeah, the Baby Hellfire Club. <laughs> that's correct. That yeah, would have been a better name, actually. Stuff from, from back, way back, though. Like, they're, they're like, they're a human, they're a human Hellfire Club, though, right? They're like a counter... Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, yeah, I've never... I've never been a fan of these characters, so I don't care as much about them being used. Um, I like them more as like the idea of you know an anti Hellfire Club as opposed to the actual people who run them. Because I've never liked Cade Kilgore. I just have never really liked how they've been written. I just it's never been something that worked for me. But I like the idea of having an anti Hellfire Club, and I like that they just at sometimes just go by the Verendi. I think that works better. <laughs> But I think you did a good job, Paul. Like it's it Latin, you just pronounce every letter. Hominus Verendi. Yeah, you, that's that's great. That's good. Okay. Sure. We go, we'll, just call, we'll just call him Verendi for short, if you want. <laughs> I like sure Storm um, stabs this guy in the face. <laughs> Which guy does she stab? The guy in the Russian armor. Oh yeah. He has his dagger and right in the f- eyeball. Yeah, how do you make sure you don't kill a human by stabbing them in the eye, like, or the face? And then kick them in the face right afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Um, I did feel like this was maybe the, the youngest that Donald Pierce has ever looked. Yeah, for sure. Like he's, well, yeah, I guess. Like, he's, you know, he's a, he was always a contemporary of Sebastian, maybe a little bit younger, but now he feels, he just feels a lot younger. But again, that could be prosthetic, you know, face, who knows. Prosthetic face. Well, I mean, he's yeah. a cyborg. Like, he's been he's been ripped down to nothing yeah. before, so it's it's definitely out, not outside the realm of possibilities. So, I mean, I'm, I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but... I mean, obviously, we get kind of the the big cliffhanger of the issue is Sebastian Shaw's big plan. Um, you know, again, you read this differently than we did, Nate. How did you feel about, you know, kind of the, the big climactic ending of this particular volume? I do give them credit that it definitely didn't feel like they were writing for the trade because, you know, in writing for the trade, you, you kind of wrap something up, not leave a giant dangling plot thread. So how did you feel about it? Um... I felt that, you know what, I thought it was a bit sudden. I thought, um, considering things had just begun with the Kirkoan status quo, and all these questions were coming, were being thrown out there about Kate and her ability to maneuver through the portals and what would happen if she dies, I thought they would stretch it out a little bit more. I didn't think that they would just go, okay, um, as soon as she can be killed, someone's going to try to kill her. Um, and then we'll see, we'll deal with it. So, yeah, it's a, it's quite a cliffhanger. It's it's very it's very effective for what it is as a, in a trade volume. I could not wait to get the next volume. 
I did like the last kind of shot of the issue where uh, you know Sebastian saw looking so happy with himself with the you know with the sun behind him. Um, it was just a, it was just a nice a nice moment. It's interesting because I feel like a lot of the Sebastian Shaw moments I remember. I feel like often he just gets his shirt ripped off. Like, how many times has this happened back in the day where in the Dark Phoenix saga he gets ends up shirtless? Um, I remember when he when they had Kingpin come back to the X books. Yeah, that's right, Kingpin in like issue sixty something of X Men. You had Sebastian Shaw going teaming up with the X Men to fight the Kingpin, and he again shows up all shirtless. Like Sebastian Shaw is shirtless all the time, so this time he's so buttoned up all the time, and I find it actually very effective. <laughs> well, um, yeah, not so much here, right? This is the mastermind version rather than the physical one. Like, he gets a little bit physical with Emma. She was a diamond form, and if you you know whatever. There was up against something, but there's not a lot of physicality. And I remember, yeah, that storyline of an animated series where he keeps getting hit. He's like, keep hitting me. I love it. Like, I'll, I'll take it all day. I, I, I absorb what you directed me. And then um, I thought that was like one of the most crazy powers ever. Um, it was like the, the physical version of Bishop, which, mm-hmm. by the way, you know, we were speaking with Bishop earlier. I, he does not get shot enough with laser beams. I would like to see him get charged. I remember, like, in the Will Sportacio days, he was constantly getting shot with things and powering up, and his clothes would also rip, right? Because mm-hmm. the empty nimbus around him. And then he could, and then Claremont would be like, Bishop, uh, the mutant whose powers are gifted a curse, and he has the power to absorb energy and redirect and act at the target. And then it would just do that and show us the same thing that he had just said he would show us doing it and I was like okay I know his powers I knew the first time I saw what his powers were if you asked somebody who had this volume what Bishop's powers are they've never seen him before do you think they would know what his powers are no he's big guns but I mean if they yeah, watched the he, Days of Future Past movie they also wouldn't know what his powers were either so that's true you wouldn't know what half the character's powers are anyway. <laughs> um, yeah so this is Shaw at his scheming his scheming best um, he, he, you know, I like how at the beginning of issue five, he slighted, right? Like both Emma and, and Christian's there too. And Kate outmaneuver him. They take it to a vote. He's outvoted. He's really mad. And mm-hmm. we already know that he's mad at Emma because of the vein busting and whatever it is. Issue two, this is, this is a vendetta of this man. who's used to being the most powerful man in every room, both physically and intellectually. And he's being there's the circles you know around him uh, run around him by these women these powerful women so the fact that he can't he doesn't know for sure if this is going to stick with kate but he knows it's going to piss off emma and he knows it might stick he knows that she could die and even if she comes back he i guess he has that feeling like well we're immortal anyway it's that chess game and, and uh, I guess it's inevitable. The more you think about the, the the way that it's constructed in the volume and the way that things escalate, I guess it was inevitable. I guess if they had strung it along too long, it would have felt like, well, Shaw has no real planning skills at all. It really establishes him as a threat. And I find that really compelling because when death isn't really a threat, except for Kate, of course, um, how do you make stories compelling? It doesn't feel like the stakes are there. And yet – like there are these stakes. She's drowning and she's screaming, and her her buddy Lockheed is in danger too. And can Lockheed be brought back to life? Like if Lockheed dies, is that it for him? And I love Lockheed, so it still made me feel things. And particularly because we don't know in this volume if Kate can be brought back, and we've established how awesome she is and how capable she is, and how she's developed this great relationship with Emma. So there are different kinds of stakes, and 
kind of like what we talked about before, how when you get brought back, there's no assurance that your all your memories will get brought back. It, Cerebro only updates every once in a while, every often. And if you're too far scope of Cerebro, there still is the potential for loss. So with Kate's powers being the way they are, can she get brought back, but she only remembers what? Entering Krakoa, will she lose all those memories? And so all those moments that she's had, uh, certainly she loses her tattoos. Those um, Don't worry, she's going to get... She'll, she'll get more, don't worry. Yeah, she will. But I think it really works. All of it. Like, wishing the, the, the art, the panels of, of the drowning scene, I thought they were pretty, like... I don't know if it's graphic, but they were like pretty powerful in terms of how they portrayed that that process happening. Saying like she's dead, like where, this is like a, a real kind of slap in the face. Yeah, it's kind of like I said before, but at time there's interesting tonal shifts in this book, and so that's one of those you know it takes a hard right into being very serious um, and again un- uncomfortable. And again, I I think it's partly because you see the progression of her, you know, slowly drowning. Like, that's... And the realization that that character kind of has, like, the, the the acting that the artist has to portray to make you believe it, to make you see the panic, um, you know, it's it, that's not an easy feat. You know, it takes a lot of, you know, skill to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. The intensity of her face when Sebastian drops Bakhid over the over the side... Mm-hmm. Um, really good, very evocative. Um, and you know, back to your earlier comment too about the antagonists they bring in here. Um, you know, you've got Pierce and you've got Hatemonger. Um, it is, it isn't noteworthy. Some of the villains they choose to bring in here that are essentially just like Nazi. You know, you've already had in Uncanny Avengers an actual Nazi, um, Red Skull, saying things like, "I, you know, he's already got all the." hatred for minority groups and also he adds to that his hatred of mutants and then they're in a bloodline and so they're also bringing in this series a lot of people who are essentially human human supremacists or whatever the equivalent of a nazi who loves humans most would be and actual things like hate monger right and um any kind of bigoted villain they can find and you're like yeah they would have that motivation of course they would like this this makes sense that these are the villains at this time especially because Krakoa has so quote unquote called the world out that it that it draws these scumbags from the woodwork. The executioner though, I must admit, I only remember him briefly in the nineties. I don't really know almost anything about what he is and what he could do. So No one does. Is, no one does. Okay, great. It is startling to see this over an overly indulgent nineties design in a two thousand twenty or two thousand nineteen book. Where things are a little, they, they feel like they feel a bit more real, and he's just overly bulky, and his clothes are mismatched, and they go different directions, and this arm has armor, but then there's a cloak, like, and, and, and pouches. I don't know what he is. <laughs> don't love him. He's awesome, is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, there's only one word for it. He must be awesome. He, he basically has everything. He's got. Adam X and Cable and and Strife. He's just everything combined into one one look. So yeah, he's clearly the coolest guy around. So Nate, I have a question for you. You have uh, the Marauders Volume Two with you physically, right? Yes. Can you tell me on, on the back of the book what issues it's supposed to have? 
what the back of the book says it's supposed to have, or what? It, are you saying there's a discrepancy, but what it, between what it says and what it has? Uh, no, I, well, I think the online description might be incorrect, and I'm curious what the actual book says. Oh, I see. Okay. Because uh, I was I'd just be happy I was, to help. I was just curious because, uh, like, I saw online that you know, number one has obviously issues one to six, which we've talked about today. And then volume two, uh, at least online, looks like it's only supposed to seven to eleven. I'm like, oh, is all the rest of it in X of Swords? And then when I look at the X of Swords listing, which we don't, no one has it yet, obviously, so we don't know for sure. That one at the moment says it only has issue like thirteen. I'm like, well, hold on, there's a disconnect here. So what's going on? Yeah, it's 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 um, seven to twelve. Okay, good. That that makes me feel a little bit better. I'm still confused by things because the X of Swords hardcover is at least listed as only having issue 13 of Hel- uh, Marauders, and then the volume 3 of Marauders, at least the initial uh, listing online, shows its issues like 16 to 21 or something, So, which well, would make you miss a few I more issues. How, I love how Adam wants to bring about the denouement of our podcast episode with <laughs> discussion about numbers of comics. It seems like it's happened every week. I, I should say, it's, it's about the most on-brand thing I could say for who I am as a person. Like, I love numbering of comics. Let's, let's be honest. Well, I'm glad we were able to get to the bottom of this. Um, and it's <laughs> unfortunate that they misnumbered it online. I must have been havoc for so many people. Uh, it's not an intentional pun. Um, again, way off topic, but there is a much, there was a, a really bad um, misprinting of a solicit for a Birds of Prey trade paperback over at DC. Uh, collecting Gail Simone's run because they had come out with a volume, but because it's DC, they hate doing collections in a way that makes sense. So instead of doing, you know, Birds of Prey by Gail Simone Volume One, they just did a random volume with a name, and then they did another one, and then all the all the solicitations everywhere said it was like forty issues later into her run. So everyone's like, "Well, why do you guys do this?" Turns out it was the second volume, but no one knew it because all the solicitation copies were wrong. Um, and so only if you actually find the actual trade, it says the proper issues. And I think they finally started updating it online, but for like six months, it was all wrong. And so people just did not know how to, you know, continue collecting this Gail Simone run because DC just didn't care to do things correctly, which is not a surprise. Their collection department is in, is in tatters. It's terrible. (laughs) Okay. Take that DC. Um, yeah, that's weird, right? Cause it's a really big. I mean, as far as comics go, it's it's a big publishing company. Like, it's weird that they wouldn't. And there's money in collections, so I, that that was a thing that I thought was odd, you know, years ago for DC. And it, the fact that they haven't necessarily fixed that yet is kind of that's sad for DC fans who really want to read the next volume or have volumes of things nicely organized on their shelf, and then either it gets discontinued or they change the format or whatever happens. And, yeah, I mean, I mean, really Marvel's not obviously not immune either, but I feel like they are have much less of a transgression in that in that regard. Like, if you're a DC fan, you've had a lot more issues you've had to deal with through your collections. Plus, they cancel collections all the time. Whereas when Marvel solicits something, I've almost never seen anything get canceled. The only time I've ever seen anything get postponed is that you know, in the COVID pandemic, kind of happened. You had comics that just weren't coming out anymore. So obviously, those trades got pushed way back. Like. I was yeah. buying the, the Gwen Stacy miniseries, and I got two issues of it, and then I don't know when I'm going to issue three. It's been a year, and I don't know if I'm ever going to get the rest. And I also pre-ordered the, the trade paperback, which now says it's coming out in, like, 2083, so maybe. Who knows? Maybe you linearverse will fix all of DC's problems. Oh, God. Garbage. 
least there's a chance that, you know, because of the pandemic, things get pushed back. Okay, that's a, produ- a production issue. It can come out. I mean, goodness knows, Ten of Swords keeps getting pushed back. But it's not like Kevin Smith just stops writing a book. <laughs> no, like, that, we haven't uh, had that happen in Bulls a long time. Oh, yeah, we never we never got the end of the the target. The target? That's what it was, yeah. Bullseye target. But even uh, Daredevil... Ah, Fa- Spider-Man Black had take to finally get yeah. finished. That took a while. Yeah. Um, so did Daredevil Father by Joe Quesada. Like, he... He was just working on that on himself, and then he just stopped doing it. You think uh, Joe Madrero is going to finish Battle Chasers ever? <laughs> <laughs> you know, crazy things happen. Who knows? I'm going to hold my breath for that. No. So, I guess any any kind of final thoughts you guys wanted to talk about with regards to Marauders? Like, it sounded like we all kind of enjoyed it. It was nice to have a you know a different direction, different characters too. I mean, some of them obviously are bigger names like Iceman and Storm, but it you know we also got more of a Sebastian Shaw focus. Uh, you know, it's nice to have a, a different a different slice. Um, whereas X Force and X Men aren't that different from each other. Like, you know, they're you know they're not they're I mean they're really not. I mean in terms of their approach so far. I, you guys are making faces at me. I don't think they're that different. Like Again, like X-Force to me could have just not well, been X-Force, could have just been in the X-Men book, and I don't think you would have really noticed that much. I mean, they're all about mutants, Adam, so really, we could just say nothing's really that different, but <laughs> I would say there's the tone of X-Men and X-Force, I'd say, is very is different. It's quite substantially different. Violence, and in terms of the focus, but it's not a really important distinction I suppose to make just read it all buy it all if I had somebody who said uh, which I don't like a lot of violence what would you recommend I probably wouldn't read uh, recommend Marauders or X-Force but I would recommend a bunch of other X-Books instead yeah I mean I I guess yeah Excalibur is the you know the the magic one I guess you know Hellions Uh, is the damaged mutants one like I can't wait for more Hellions I know you're very excited. Well, it's nice to just see Zeb Wells writing comics again. I want him to write another book. I hope that I know that there's expanding, you know, like X Corps coming out and stuff like that. I would, I really hope that Zeb's going to pick up another one. He can do no wrong to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he can do some wrong. <laughs> well, uh, that day's kind of maybe in the future, but for now, I just want more stuff from him. So I'm very happy he's back. I. So I guess in terms of ratings, what do you guys give this one so far? I mean, we can obviously we always kind of give a number rating, but I'm also just more curious as we go along, especially with the different books, to kind of compare and contrast to the other lines. So so far we've only talked about X Men. Would you say that did you enjoy this 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 run, these six issues, more than the first trade paperback of the X Men by Jonathan Hickman? I gave like Jonathan Hickman's uh, volume one of X Men an eight point five, and then maybe almost pushed it up to the nine. Um, this I would say nine, maybe even up to a nine point five. I enjoyed this a little bit more. I really liked it. Okay, I did find it's interesting that the I think the art I enjoyed it more. Again, I, I kept bumping on something with with Lionel Francis Yu's artwork that with the colors that were on it, it never felt like it was art. It was colors that were designed to really make it pop in an extra way. Whereas I felt like this is though we had a lot of different artists uh, tonally, as you guys mentioned at the beginning, the colors made it still feel similar. And so it didn't feel like you were getting tonal shifts, even though you had different artists. And I felt like this definitely popped more off the page. Whereas again, I didn't always get that with X-Men. And I guess I think it was just something about whoever who was coloring over Lana Francis Hughes work that it, it just wasn't taking it to the next level. It wasn't making it pop in a more modern way. 
What about you, Paul? What is your what is your ranking? No, again, this, I, this is easily one of my favorite books of the bunch. I was pleasantly surprised by it, like I said, off the hop. Um, you know, it, it found it, it carved out a very specific niche within this new Hickman Xverse, and uh, it, it doesn't veer away from anything. It is very grounded in its mission and doesn't throw any type of weird shenanigans at you. Most of the, um, uh, outside of maybe the, the, the Sinister Secrets, most of the compendium kind of graph pages aren't those, oh, it's going to drag me out of the story and re-explain crap to me type of ones, right? <laughs> they, they, more of them were very enhancements or something kind of fun. Um, so I appreciate those. Um, you know, as you go on with those... Uh, the letter pages that the one person's reporting on constant stuff, it, the less of the redacted stuff goes away, so you kind of see who's responsible for that as the, the issues go on, so that's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I, I generally a pretty cool book, um, and I, I love where it, uh, it carves it out, and I'm excited to see kind of where it rolls through going forward, because it kind of hits, you, you have this first issue, these first six issues, which focus on building up Kate and building the uh, the mystique and, and, and the... Uh, the butting heads of, of Emma and Sebastian, and then Kitty dies. The next trade, you'll see Nate has, you know, kind of the opposite, where we, we deal with almost a reverse in a certain way. And now we're at Ten of Swords, and then we'll have to see kind of where they want to go from here afterwards. Uh, Nate, I, I think as we go along, I, I, I want to check in with you once in a while to gauge your your love and your uh, your feelings of desire of really wanting to go to Krakoa. And so, I, I, again, like this felt like one that again we focused a little bit more on the geography of Krakoa, and we have you know Hammer, um, sorry, um, uh, Hellfire Bay. Like, what, what was your overall feelings of how badly did you want to go to Krakoa as you're reading this, or do you want to? Did you just want to be on the Marauder? Um, yeah, mostly on the Marauder, um, going and seeing what they see, helping people. That's really that's a no, it's just a really cool idea. Like that, that idea. It's, Finding the lost and bringing them home. I mean, why is that not a, a beautiful thing or a thought anyway? Theoretically, Madripoor bringing Madripoor back in full like center into the universe, even though it's not really a place that, according to the comics, it's a place you'd want to stay for very long. Just being able to be there and see it and quest. It's a quest, right? It's a quest book. You're always going places and seeing things, and then yeah, coming back to the Hellfire Bay um, as home. So yeah smell the ocean breeze and, and that kind of thing. There's definitely not as much in this book of making me want to be in Krakoa because there's a lot of just um, eggs splooching open with uh, naked bodies coming out of them <laughs> and then the most... Don't celebrate them because they are mutant. Yeah, I know. Uh, who, who's, the, who's the cult group that hangs around the tree, the great tree, the great arbor uh, to do that ceremony? Do they get called? Like, Do they get summoned? Or like they always hanging out is it near where Dazzler goes on stage so they can kind of always have a party? I don't know. I, it's pretty, you got to figure after... Because they're bringing back thousands, right, of, of mutants. How boring eventually that might get. But um, the beginning certainly where like, Iceman's hanging out and Wolverine comes running into the into the, into the the ocean to grab his beer and Iceman's pulling food off of a tree. Like, that's really cool and inviting and that seems really neat. But a lot of this is... Uh, vessels on the sea and uh, eating houses or corporate facilities or uh, shops of Taiwan or Russia. So, uh, some, I think it's up to Mark at one point. So there's a lot of globe trotting, not as much 
um, at home. And so there's not that same. I mean, behind me, no one can see it, but I guess Adam and Paul is a, a shot from another comic where it's just a beautiful, gorgeous scene of Krakoa with this purple pink light um, shining through a forest and, and the verdant green, almost aqua green grass. Like, that's super cool and would be inviting to me in, in that different way. So it doesn't have the same, you know, um, juicy, what's the word, juiciness? <laughs> the juice is running down my chin of biting into a delicious <laughs> Krakoan peach. Um, but it, 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 it's satisfying in other ways, for mm. sure. And I guess it makes me say, uh, yo-ho, yo-ho, a marauding life for me. <laughs> Which Adam will uh, make the title of this episode. He promised us he would. Is that not right, Paul? Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> um, Sorry, Daddy. Oh, we need no, a check, Sean. <laughs> wait, need, I, a question. On, um, Mrs. Zhao, her husband, who she oh, trapped yeah. herself in that prison, and then him becoming this mutant worshipping like as a religion kind of thing. What was your take on that kind of? I um, wish we got to see more of that kind of the, that kind of cult like feeling because like, they talk about it, right? That there's you know these groups that have kind of sprung up and how they're responding to it. I wish that there was more of an analysis of that because it's interesting. I think they kind of played it for not jokes, but you know it was kind of not the most serious moment. And I think you know it, it's an interesting idea of this you know different worldview and also how your feelings on that could really kind of. You damage your relationships with other people. Like this is a couple who have very different views on mutants, um, and you know, and how to respond to it. So it's interesting. I mean, again, if we if we think about the idea, that, like if every mutant who died in Genosha is back, that's what sixteen million million mutants. They all kind of came back from nothing, um, which is crazy. And like that's a I, again to go back to Nate's kind of question about like what it's like when all these mutants are coming back. And there's always a group ready to you know kind of celebrate them. You know, you had 16 million mutants coming back. Like that's a lot of a party going on all the time. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, this is definitely feels connected to what they address in other books. This this idea of this these cults that have popped up are addressed in. Um, Excalibur and X Force, if I'm not mistaken, right? Like there, there are other books where there's a there's a much more focus on uh, on the mutant worshiping cultists. So I, I just see this as more of a the larger worldview. It's a it's a glimpse, into, which I think they've done exceptionally well. All things considered, with all the books that are going on and all the writers, I, I got the feeling that the editor, editorial voice is saying like, how can is encouraging them? How can we include a little piece of of other books, so things that appear in Wolverine are appearing in X Force, are appearing in Excalibur, are appearing in Marauders, are appearing in X Men. It really feels like it's a cohesive world. Like sometimes you get pieces of it, like with Marauders here, and then other books. I feel like I know a lot about it because I, I don't have that feeling. As someone who read these volumes, the first series of volumes all at once, and then I got the second series of volumes, but that was all at once. Um, I, I, I was like, oh, okay, I, w- I wonder we'll know more about these cultists. And I open up another book, and I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, there's several pages dedicated to that. So hmm. all the more so that I would encourage listeners who aren't reading all the books to just read them all because maybe there are things that will draw your attention, things that you'll like, and they'll be answered more in one book um, and less than another. And so you can get the full picture that way. So, but it's interesting because I was, was, I was like, in the order that I read these two, I already knew that they were worshipping occultists that worship mutants. And so I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. Yeah, so he's one of them too. Okay, yeah. That mm. scene, by the way, though, Kitty's pretty brutal in that, isn't she? Taking out those Death Strike. Yeah. 
assassins. Mm-hmm. So there's a pillow and refeed. Yeah. yeah. That's so gross. So now, like, is her face soft? Like, part, part of her face caves in like a pillow? Like, it's very upsetting. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, the stuff they, they think of doing with her powers is quite... Like, it, back in the day, no one was really thinking that hard about, you know, how, how would this actually, you know, screw people up? How would this hurt people? And now, maybe they spend too much time thinking about this stuff. Maybe, but uh, the Gorgon's words in X-Men, where, uh, what is it, was issue five or something like that, where he says to the the soldiers that he's basically dismembering, right? He's he's crippling all of these guys for life. He's, he's taking off their limbs. Uh, he says, I will not kill you because that is our law, but I will make you essentially rue the day you ever turned against you. So and in one way, they're creating a reputation for themselves. Like the fears of mutants, of humans are that mutants will try something. Um, and they are. They're doing things that are pushing back against power. Other humans are terrified that these mutants will become extremists and just take over the world or kill all the all the humans. Like, goodness knows Apocalypse and Magneto have threatened to in the past in varying degrees or in varying incarnations. Um, and so now that people have pillows stuck in them and they have their limbs cut off, they've been uh, attacked this way, it will probably make some people think twice, but it will also add fuel to that fire, that violence will never cure violence. And it will only make mutants, uh, humans more... Um, upset and violent in turn like they're doing what to humans oh no one's gonna say oh but don't worry she didn't kill them she only stuck a pillow in her brain hmm. or don't worry he didn't kill them he only took off their arms and legs that's not that's not a solace to the, the human population no um so it's gonna make it worse can the kirkoan drugs regrow a hand is that a thing <laughs> maybe yeah the healers what can the healers do exactly the healing gardens. So the the, the next uh, the next book that we're going to be talking about when we reconvene or reconverge uh, for Paul there um, is going to be Excalibur. So we're going to go more on the uh, the magic. Wow. So Paul had a, a guttural reaction to that. Did not. Were you not excited about that, Paul? That book hurts my brain so hard. Slip and Excalibur. I love the art. I love the characters. Well, I don't want to say anything, but yeah, it just ah. Uh. I have such a hard time following that book. Not, not to put your finger on the I, scale about how you're expecting to feel about that, but... Okay, so, I mean, so that, that that's the, the kind of... If we go by X-Men number one, that, you know, on the text page at the end, kind of showing which books come next, that was the one. Um, so I guess as kind of a, a tease, we kind of know how you're going to feel about that, Paul. Yeah, Although, here's yeah. a question. Like, so if, you know, obviously you read it when it first was happening. Do you think that you will get more out of it reading it again in a collected format, not kind of in dribs and drabs? Do you think that reading the first, what, five or six issues all at once will enhance or just remind you why you didn't really like it that much in the first place? It might... I might see things more clearly in retrospect, for sure. Um, but I don't know. And then, Nate, have you have you read it already? Oh, yeah. Okay. All right, both so volumes. I, both volumes, okay. It's interesting. So looking up next on the list, so after Excalibur... So I was almost going to be like, well, we could maybe put Excalibur and Fallen Angels together, but you know, I don't want to jump the jump the order here. We got Excalibur, then we have New Mutants, uh, X Force, Fallen Angels, and then we go back to X Men. So that's that's that was the initial kind of first era of Dawn of X was just those books. I'm going to assume it's the Hickman New Mutants rather than the. I think well, I, well, it's yeah. So, I, I think that's the one I would go with because I think issue one was definitely Hickman's run and not the, the space stuff. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Because Bissong's stuff, even though it kind of happens concurrently, 
in the middle of it, in the in the second storyline, they reference that the, the other new mutants have come back from space. So you kind of have to read the Hickman first to have them finish their space adventure, and then I guess the the Edmonton stuff will make more sense. Yeah, it'd be more interesting. Like, what do we do once we get into like you know the the after the first six issues kind of done, where do we start to go from there? Because uh, Fallen Angels drops off. Eventually, other books will kind of come up. We'll have to, at some point, we'll have to figure out how to tackle GSX as well. So there's going to be a lot of other things to come down the road as well. I'd say, yeah, we'll just, we should just do GSX at the end of all the volume ones, right? That probably makes sense. Yeah, yeah I think that makes sense. Um, last, th- again, to... I'm very pedantic, so I apologize in advance. You guys know this about me already. Listeners know this already. Um, it's interesting that even though the New Mutants, you know, trades have already come out and they're, they still have the wrong information on online about them. So if you go to like Amazon, you're like, oh, I want to buy New Mutants by Ed Brisson, Volume One. It makes it look like it's New Mutants Seven to Twelve, and that is definitely not correct. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, it's it's all sorts of confusing. Like it should have just been a Volume Two, if or I mean. Again, there was some kind of... I they never should have published it the way they did in the first place. If you're reading that on a monthly basis, you're like, am I going to get the, you know, are they going to go back to that story or just do something completely different? Like, it was so, a weird choice from a publishing perspective. Absolutely. And rather than calling it two different names and just keeping it separate, they went with one name, whatever decision that that was is whatever. But when they publish them and they have New Mutants Volume 1 followed by New Mutants Volume 1... <laughs> I don't know who who has a hope. Who has a hope? What kid at you know at the bookstore who's like I've always wanted to read a comic and they my my friend says New Mutants is good and then their parent picks it up. Friend stage. lied. This is a fictional story because no kid has ever said that. Like maybe in the eighties when New Mutants was first I, happening. Right. I, I guess it has extra problems because people aren't as likely to look for it. But when they do, they might go, "What am I looking at?" And I don't know what to tell them. Like, even when you were asking us, and we were, like, texting back and forth trying to explain what the hell this is and how it's confusing, you're like, wait, what do I read first? And I'm like, we don't know. Like, the issues are all over the place. Such a weird guffaw for something that is so expertly curated. Like, as far as everything else is concerned, I feel like it's such an impressive reboot or soft relaunch or whatever you want to call it. Um, It's been handled so well to have this odd thing up here in the it's not like hickman had to leave the book it's not like he's like okay i can't finish this storyline um you know ed you take over it was that you're gonna do it at the same time i'm doing it we're gonna call it the same thing i i just just two different books please anyway whatever um yeah that's the only place it happens though like that's the only book that has this weird double creative team overlapping story crap and even after that you have the space stuff the farm stuff and then you go to the nightmare girl stuff and that's and it, there's been no nonsense since then right no that it, it's been all pretty in fact i think it's a new writer anyway like i think it's not even Brisson anymore so it's like it's not it's not so it's just like what was the point of that then <laughs> like it's just this weird yeah really you're right it should have just been new mutants volume one and figure it out and like maybe not have overlapping storylines that you know swap out issues or at least maybe have subplots and then maybe you could divide the issue i think that from a publishing perspective an editor could have chosen a different tactic 
Agreed. But the advantage, again, of reading everything is that ultimately it just kind of blends into this nice, wonderful overall story anyway. And I just feel like these are windows into another universe, and I get to... I mean, literally, these panels are windows, and I get to enjoy seeing what these people are doing, what these characters are doing, and yeah, at the end of the day, I don't really even care if it's called New Mutants or not. I just, like, it's more Tales of Krakoa uh, from my perspective, so... You know, if they called it that, I think it would have been easier to stomach, too. Like, if it just, if it felt like an anthology book. Again, like, if they're going to... Yeah, call it, yeah, call it Tales of Krakoa and you're done. They should hire you, Nate. Yeah, all of us. We'll be a brain trust. I really, you know, I'm not going down. I'm not going to go to work at Marvel without you two. I'm going to bring everybody on board. (laughs) We're going to milk this cow. (laughs) Uh, Any final thoughts before we sign off for the evening? Um... Buccaneers is a good book, and I recommend it to anybody. <laughs> I, I can't top that, so that's good. No, that's, that's, a that's, that's, a, that's a good final moment. Well, if you want to email us at Comic Shenanigans, you can do so at ComicShenanigans at gmail.com. Rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and you can also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again, Nate and Paul, for joining me for this episode, and I look forward to our next chat as we converge again to talk about the X-Men universe. Bye-bye. You bastards.